So the last time we talked about anything on electrostatics was when we were discussing forces, electric fields, and potentials. So today we're going to be talking about capacitance. Before we get to anything about it, let's just quickly go over the properties of conductors. Inside a conductor, E is equal to zero. The electric field is perpendicular to the surface of a charged conductor. In a static situation, the interior of a conductor has no excess charge. It, this is because of repulsion. They try to move towards the surface. The electrostatic potential is constant throughout the volume of the conductor, meaning the potential inside is equal to the potential on the surface. Um, in the case of electrostatic shielding, um, we're basically saying that in the cavity of a conductor, the electric field is zero all the time, and it's not affected by an external electric field or charge on the conductor. Now, the electric field at a point outside a charged conductor would be the charge density divided by epsilon naught. Now, when you put a conductor in an external electric field, we see that the electric field always moves from a positive charge to a negative charge. And because of this, we see that there is an external force acting on the electrons in the medium. So what happens is if, say, originally the external electric field was from the left to the right, the induced electric field as a result of the external forces on the electrons will result in an induced electric field in the opposite directions. And these electrons will continue to move around until the net electric field is zero. That means the induced electric field is exactly the same as the external electric field, but in the opposite direction. And it's because of this phenomenon that there are no field lines in a conductor. All of this happens very, very fast. Now let's talk about polar molecules versus non-polar molecules, and then move on to the types of dielectrics from there. In a polar molecule, the dipole moment is greater than zero. In non-polar molecules, it's, sorry, it's greater than zero. In non-polar molecules, it's equal to zero. And yeah, what happens in polar molecules is that the center of the positive and the negative charges don't coincide. Take HCl or H2O. When you look at nonpolar molecules, the centers of the positive and the negative charges coincide. And because of this, there's no possibility for the separation of charges in that way. And some good examples of this would be CO2 and O2. Now let's talk about dielectrics. Dielectrics are basically certain mediums in which we keep or we conduct our experiments to see how the stuff behaves. Our first thing would be a polar dielectric. Um, a polar dielectric is basically a medium that's made up of polar molecules, so we already see a separation of charges into plus and minus. Say there's plus on the left and there's minus on the other side. Now, the electric field acts on this polar molecule and it on each of the different charges it exerts an electric field in the opposite direction it pulls the plus on the left further towards the left and say the negative on the right further towards the right and as this magnitude of the electric field as it increases the stress in the molecule increases it's trying to hold itself together now at some point the e is so high that it just breaks apart and it becomes a plus and a minus and it's no longer a dielectric it's no longer a medium it is now a conductor right and when you look at nonpolar di dielectric first we see that the plus and minus are together now, our first step would be to polarize the molecules, turn them into what the polar dielectric first was, without us having to do anything. They had an inherent dipole moment. Here, we're inducing a dipole moment. And then after that, we just keep increasing the value of E until that too breaks apart. And this final value of E for which the dielectric 
remains a dielectric or the minimum value of E to turn a dielectric into a conductor is called the dielectric strength. Now that we're done with that, let's move on to capacitors. Capacitors are basically devices which store electrical energy in the form of electric fields. Now, capacitors are basically used as a really, really quick backup. It's like, um, say the other day, I had to get a tick off my dog, right? I didn't have any tweezers. So the first thing that I quickly relied upon was this old pair of nail cutters lying around, right? I don't use those nail cutters every time, but at that moment it was handy. I just used it for a second and everything was back to normal. So just like that, capacitors in circuits, what they do is, um, in the case of any tiny little fluctuation, they would have stored some teensy bit of electrical energy that they can supply in the case of some sort of electrical fluctuation. Now, capacitors are basically devices which store the electrical energy in the form of electric field, right? Their ability to do it, the capacity of this device to store charge is what we call capacitance. When you look at a resistor, its ability to resist is called resistance. So here, the ability of a conductor, the capacity of a conductor to store charge is called the capacitance. Now, before we jump to any conclusions or we go further, I would like to tell you this. Say you have a, 10, a bucket that can hold 10 liters of water. This would be the capacity of the bucket. Now say that you fill in only two liters. This doesn't mean that the capacity of the bucket has reduced to two liters. The capacity of the bucket is still 10 liters. So a capacitor may have a charge, I'm sorry, a capacitance of maybe 10 farads, right? And if it's only, if it only has um, two or three, you can't say that the capacitance of that capacitor is two or three, it has to be 10. Another thing we should know is that charges are also present on the surface and they also interact and due to this interaction we get some energy. This is called the self-energy. So when we bring charge from infinity to the surface we do some work. That work is stored as the potential energy of the charges so we get that W is equal to QV. Keep that in mind. Now, another way of going about, you know, to describing what capacitance is, is by taking this relation. We know that the charge is directly proportional to the potential difference. The greater the potential difference, the more charge will flow, right? Because um, it's like you have a very steep slide, right? You get, if you put in a lot of people, they come out much, much faster and more people get to go through that slide than you would see with a really curly, not very steep slide, right? So Q is directly proportional to V. We need to make this proportionality and equality. So Q is equal to CV. From this, we can switch it around, bring C to one side. C is equal to Q divided by V and C here is the capacitance. Now, what makes for a good capacitor? If we can store more charge with a very less potential difference, we can say that the capacitance is very high because here we get to store more energy. But in an alternate situation, it's a pretty bad capacitor. Now, what are the units and dimensions? Um, it has the units, I'm sorry, it has the dimensions m to the power minus one, l to the power minus two, t to the power four, and a to the power two. And the unit, for capacitance is farad, represented by a capital F. It's the capacitance of a conductor if one coulomb of charge raises its potential to one volt. Now, let's quickly 
think about what the capacitance of a spherical conductor would be. To find this, we start off by providing a charge to the conductor. Let's call it plus Q. Next, we find the potential difference of that spherical conductor. In this case, KQ divided by R, where R is its radius. Now we apply C is equal to Q by V. And upon plugging in the values, we get that C is equal to 4 pi epsilon naught R. Now coming to the symbolic representation of capacitors, when you have a fixed capacitance, we it's just like two parallel plates, but if it's a variable one, it's the parallel plates again, but this time with an arrow through it. Now let's talk about the parallel plate capacitor. When you look at what a parallel plate capacitor is, it's basically two metal sheets that are parallel to each other with a teensy tiny gap between them. Let's say the area of both of them is the same, it's A, and the distance between them is D. If D is very, very, very small, like really small compared to A, we consider the plates to be infinity. Now, um, to the left of, say, the plate A, the electric field would be zero. To the right of plate B, again, the electric field is zero. But in between the two plates, the electric field is not zero. There is energy bound in the space between two plates. Now, at this point of time, you may have thought to yourself, what if the two plates have two different areas? Well, let's consider um, two squares of area A, where both of them are the same. Now, this is the first case, the one that I was talking about. Here, the energy is stored completely between these two plates. The full surface area is covered. Now, let's say that we took our normal plate A and we used it in a capacitor with um, a square half the size of A acting as the other parallel plate. At this point of time, the energy is stored only in that area. Um, that both of them can like you know sort of share like if i put the smaller plate on the bigger plate only the area that both of them share is the area over which we can see that there is any capacitance at all now for a parallel plate capacitor c is equal to a epsilon naught divided by d and the energy stored would be q squared divided by 2c the force would be Q squared divided by 2A epsilon naught. Now, this was when we had air being the only thing present between the two parallel plates. What if we insert a new medium, a dielectric? What if we introduce a dielectric between the two parallel plates? Now, the first thing we're going to be seeing is that the dielectric gets polarized, right? And if say we had two plates, A and B. A had a positive charge, B had a negative charge. The dielectric in the middle will have a negative charge towards the side of A and a positive charge towards the side of B. This is the induced electric, induced charges, which results in an induced electric field that is exactly opposite to the electric field that was initially between the two parallel plates of the capacitor, right? So here, the E net would have to be um, the initial electric field minus the induced electric field. And after working it out, we get that um, the induced charge is equal to the original charge times 1 minus 1 by k, where k is the dielectric constant. Now, quick question. What if this dielectric was a metal or a conductor? 
at this point of time, e would have to be equal to zero. And for e to be zero, k has to tend to infinity. And one thing we need to note that when we have a dielectric, the net field is lesser than what we started with. Now let's talk about potential and the capacitance with the dielectric. Um, if we don't have any batteries conducted to the whole circuit, then we see that the relation V is equal to V naught divided by K volts. Every time I use naught here, it's going to be implying the original um, quantity. So V is equal to V naught by K. This holds good without a battery. If there is a battery, then the V is maintained. So this kind of goes uh, floozy. Anyway, so when we have a dielectric between a parallel plate capacitor, then the new potential that we get is going to be um, one by K times the original potential. But then in all cases, the new capacitance is always greater than the original capacitance. Greater by how much? Greater by C naught times K. So the, C, the new capacitance will be the original capacitance times the dielectric constant, automatically making it bigger. Now, if we had a partially filled dielectric, then C would be equal to A epsilon naught divided by D minus T times 1 minus 1 by K. In this case, the D would be the distance between the two plates, and T is the thickness of that partial dielectric, and K is its what you call it, dielectric constant. Now, when T is equal to D, meaning the whole thing is completely filled, C is equal to A epsilon naught K divided by D, what we ended up with. Um, if the slab is conducting, then this means that K tends to infinity. So C is equal to A epsilon naught divided by D minus T. And if we have multiple dielectrics, C is equal to A epsilon naught divided by D minus the summation of whatever thicknesses of dielectrics you have, plus the summation of each of the thicknesses divided by their corresponding dielectrics. Now, when you have a battery connected, then we see that the potential is being maintained across its ends. The V new is equal to the V original. But the Q is equal to K times Q naught. The new Q is equal to the dielectric constant times the original charge that was flowing through. And when we look in terms of the energy, the energy is again multiplied by the dielectric constant. U is equal to U naught times K. When a battery remains connected, the energy stored by the capacitor become, becomes K times its original value. Now, when a battery is disconnected, the charge on the plates remains the same, but the V nu would be V naught divided by K. The potential difference becomes one by K times the initial um, V value. And the new electric field becomes one by K times the original E. And again, the energy stored becomes U naught divided by K. Now let's move on to the various ways in which we can arrange our capacitors. The first one would be a series combination of capacitors. Two or more capacitors are said to be in series if the charge on all the capacitors is the same. So one thing we need to remember is if they're in series, the charge is the same, but the voltage is different. 
right? So when we have to derive it, we go for V is equal to V1 plus V2, and then just like draw our diagrams and plug in the values. I'll just tell you the result. One by C equivalent. What do I mean by C equivalent? I mean, if I had a circuit with three different capacitors, then if I put in um, just one capacitor with a capacitance equal to C equivalent, I would get the same effect as I would with the first um, situation. So in this case, one by C equivalent is equal to the sum of the reciprocals of each of the capacitors connected in series. Now, if they ask us questions where they're like, find the C equivalent, find the energy in each capacitor, find the voltage, find the charge in each capacitor, all of that, here are the steps you need to do, um, follow rather. Step one, find the C equivalent. Number two, use the C equivalent to find the charge on all the capacitors in series. Which formula are you gonna use for this? C is equal to Q equivalent times V. And this charge is going to be the same on all of the capacitors in series. Because remember, when your capacitors are in series, the charge is the same, only the voltage is different. Number three, because the Q is the same and C is different, use V is equal to Q by C to find the individual potentials. This is when they're like, find the voltage across each individual capacitor. And finally, use C and V to find the energy of each capacitor. You can use the relation energy is equal to half CV squared. And yeah, since V, the, since the voltage across each of the capacitors isn't the same, don't expect their energies to be the same. Now that we're done with the series combo, let's go on to the parallel combo of capacitors. Two or more capacitors are said to be conduct sorry, connected in parallel if the potential difference across them is the same. When we looked at series, charge was the same, potential was different. Here, the voltage is the same or the potential difference is the same, the charge is different. So here, because the charge is different, we can say that the overall charge is equal to the sum of the individual charges. So Q is equal to Q1 plus Q2. Plug in your values. You eventually end up um, with the statement or the equation that C equivalent is equal to the sum of all of the capacitances. Now, in this case, notice how I'm not taking the reciprocals. I'm just taking it very, very directly. Now, again, when they give you questions like finding the charges across each of the capacitors, the potential differences, the energy, the total energy, and the C equivalent, number one, if they're in parallel because the voltage across each of them is the same, V1 is equal to V2 is equal to blah, 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 equate all of them to, say, some rudimentary V. Next, we find C equivalent by, you know, plugging in the C. I mean, sorry, by adding each of their capacitors capacitances. Then um, to find the charge on each capacitor, since it varies, um, we use Q is equal to Cn times V. Cn is individual to each capacitor, but the V is constant for all. And again, the U on each, the U of each capacitor is different because the C isn't the same. Now, what else? Um, energy density. Energy density is basically um, the energy present per unit volume. It's represented by a lowercase u. u is equal to half times epsilon naught times the square of the electric field. Um, what else? Here, think about this. When a conducting plate of negligible thickness is placed between the plates of a parallel plate capacitor, the capacitance of the arrangement remains unchanged. We're basically saying that if you put in a little thin sheet of aluminum foil between two capacitors, you can't really do anything. 
Now, what else? Oh yeah, there were these diagrams or figures of like all these weird capacitors. It's like a bunch of plates and then like they're each connected by some wire or something. Um, so basically for that, the concept you need to use is that when a bunch of these plates are connected by a conduct conducting wire, we're basically saying that the charge flows through these plates till the potentials are equal and because of that this acts as the surface of a conductor so both of them will be equal potential surfaces and yeah you just use that and say that if the voltage across the capacitors is equal then they're set to be in parallel and if you have a bunch of these plates say an n number of plates then the number of capacitors you'll have will be n minus one hmm what next? So now, oh yeah, when you have two capacitors connected, um, one uncharged and one charged, say our C1 capacitor is uncharged and C2 is charged um, with plus Q on one plate, minus Q on the other plate. Um, and Q, lowercase Q, is the charge that is moved around in order to get everybody nice and happy. Capital Q minus lowercase Q divided by C2 is equal to lowercase Q divided by C1. If the plates are given unequal charges, what are we supposed to do? We find the net electric field. We use the net electric field to find the potential. We use the formula V is equal to E dot dr. And then we express the V in terms of C and Q. Now let's come to dielectric strength. I think I've covered this before. It's basically the max value of the electric field intensity that a dielectric can handle before it just breaks down and turns into a conductor. Um, what else? Work done by the battery. The work done by a battery is equal to CV squared. The loss of energy when a battery is conducted um, is equal to the work done by the battery minus the change in the internal energy. What do I mean by loss of energy? Let's check this out. Um, the energy stored in a battery would be half CV squared. The work done by the battery would be CV squared. So where did the other half CV squared go? This goes because of resistance. Basically, um, the wire doesn't allow all the current to pass completely freely. It offers some sort of resistance and this results in heat being dissipated. And that's where your energy is lost. Next, um, the Wheatstone Bridge. Um, the Wheatstone Bridge is like a diamond, you know, in a little circuit. Just imagine a diamond. And now just draw a straight line, a vertical line through those two corners, one on the top, one on the bottom. And now put in a little capacitor in each of the sides of the diamond and then one in the middle, right? So in this case, the capacitors are neither in parallel nor are they in series. But here's a little trick. If it's balanced, if the potential difference across those two pointy ends across which we drew that line, then the ratio of the capacitors on each side will be equal, right? So in this case, the capacitor in that middle line that we took, that basically plays no role. So there are two ways we can go about it. One, we remove it entirely and take the top two sides to be in uh, series, the bottom two sides to be in series, and then just take them to be in parallel together. Or we can just replace it with a conducting wire. That being said, let's move on to the symmetry theorem. 
where we talk about perpendicular axis symmetry. I wrote my notes in like two different places this time, so it's like a mess. Uh, I don't like it when it's this messy. I'll have to fix it. So yeah, basically when we talk about the symmetry theorem or perpendicular axis symmetry, um, I'm not going to be explaining much. It's pretty simple. The first thing we have to do is just join the points across which the C equivalent has to be calculated, sorry. And then we draw a line perpendicular to the line that we just drew, that bisects it, a perpendicular bisector. And if this acts as a plane mirror, meaning that if you look at both the sides of this line and they're both the same, um, we can use this method. So what we consider is that all the points on this perpendicular bisector are at the same potential. And that is a very important conclusion because after we say that they're all at the same potential, we can immediately go on to saying that some are connect connected in series or some are connected in parallel. It just makes the whole thing a lot easier. Now let's move on to Kirchhoff's law. Um, the first one would be his law about current, basically saying that the sum of charges entering a junction is equal to the sum of the charges leaving it. And finally, Kirchhoff's voltage law. Um, it's also called the loop rule. So here basically we're saying that the algebraic sum of the potential differences in any loop must be equal to zero. So what are we supposed to do? Our first step would be to distribute the charge. We can start from any point on the circuit. We just start moving the charges around. After that, we apply Kirchhoff's law. So say we have a branching somewhere in the middle, we use his law of current and we say that the sum of charges entering is equal to the sum of charges leaving it. And then just quickly adapt or change our circuit in such a way that one particular path gets so-and-so charged and this other particular path gets so-and-so charged. But when we add these two charges together, we get whatever charge was entering them in the first place. And yeah, after that, we start using his loop rule. We decide a loop and it doesn't matter whether we go clockwise or anti-clockwise. We just need to start from a point and then make sure we keep following it, right? So say we take the loop A, B, C. I need to make sure to finish it and go back to A. So it would be A, B, C, A, right? And here I just basically calculate the potential differences, add them up and equate them to zero. And usually in questions where we talk about this, there are like two or three parts to the entire circuit. So you end up with two variables and you use those two variables to, I'm sorry, you use those two equations to figure out what those variables are. Now, what else? We come to the last part of capacitors where we talk about spherical capacitors. Wait, I've talked about that. C is equal to four pi epsilon naught R for a spherical capacitor. Um, if any, say we have two, concentric spherical shells or not shells spherical conductors then all we have to do is distribute the charges and find the charges on the outer shell or the inner shell if either one of them is grounded and we end up with the equation that c is equal to four pi epsilon naught b a divided by b minus a where b is the bigger radius and a is the smaller radius and the last one would be the cylindrical capacitor if it has, um, in this case, when we're talking cylindrical capacitor, we're talking two coaxial super long infinite cylinders um, with the radii equal to R1 and R2, where R1 is a smaller radius. 
So in, in this case, C would be equal to 2 pi epsilon naught times L divided by the natural log of R2 divided by R1. And yeah, with that, we come to the end of this whole capacitance chapter. And one thing I'd like to say just before like I conclude the whole thing is um, whenever you have like a bunch of capacitors, so you have a random capacitor A just lying along the line. Now, say you just decide to be evil and then pretend like you're going to put a parallel capacitor on it or just like, you know, a rectangle. Forget the bottom line, just draw the top three lines and connect it. You know what I mean? Um, in this case, what would happen is the potential will be equal both before the capacitor and after the capacitor. And because of this charge doesn't really, really want to consider that to be a capacitor so it's said to be short-circuited and it doesn't act as a capacitor anymore same thing goes for resistors which i will be talking about maybe in another recording and yes that's the end